Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year to you. Every year, about three times a year, I make my trip over to the Salvation Army store to give away my old clothes. And thankfully, my wife, Melody, regularly cleans out our closets, producing a variety of giveaways. Usually, these clothes are in pretty good shape. The problem is, we've simply outgrown them. Don't ask me how I've outgrown them. I like to say they've shrunk in the dryer. Nevertheless, I load up a a few garbage bags full of old clothing, drive over to the Salvation Army store, and drop them off. The attendant there gives me a little receipt and on my way to do other things for the rest of the day. One thing's for sure. I never go back to get those old clothes. I just don't go back to get them. I don't go back and ask the attendant to dig them out of the loading truck. I don't go back into the store to see if I can find them on the racks for sale. As a matter of fact, not only are they gone, but I don't want them. Today we're back in our study Ephesians. And in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, as we study our passage today, we're going to find out that God has cleaned out our closets that he has taken our old clothes to the salvation store, so to speak, and purchased us new ones. And just like it is obvious that we would never go back to the Salvation Army store to get our old clothes, we wouldn't go back to God and say, give me my old self back, Lord. That is the person we were prior to salvation. If we did, the Lord would look at us and he would say, that person is gone. He or she has been crucified. So live out of the new person I've created you to be. So today as we root ourselves in God's word, we're going to see that as believers, we can no longer live like the world because we've not learned Christ that way. Instead, we must live out of our new identity because God has given us new clothes. In Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24, we read this. Paul says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given them over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, having laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceits, And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And having put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Now Paul is painting the picture as to what it looks like for a believer to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we've been called. In review, we are called to diligently preserve the unity of the spirit. Because we are one body with one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father. But we are to recognize that this body has a diversity of grace gifts that God has given to each one of us. He's given these gifts so that through the ministry and exercise of each person's gifts, the body of Christ would be built up to the fullness of Christ. Because of that, we would no longer be deceived, but we would be able to grow up in Christ to maturity. And so after having said this, we learn in our verses today that we must not live like the world because we've not learned Christ in that way. Instead, we are to live out of our new identity. And so one question that we must ask today is, well, how does the world live? Paul says in verse 17 that the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Now here we equate the Gentiles with the unbelieving world because remember that the Jew and the Gentile are now one, in one body called the church. So the believers in Ephesus are not to live like the Gentiles, i.e. they're not to live like the world. And so what in the world does that mean? Well, the Greek word for futility is meteotos. It is used four times in the New Testament, and it means this, without purpose, unable to achieve its goal. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, Paul states, If Christ has been raised, your faith is futile, or your faith is worthless. That is, if Christ has not been raised. If that were the case, our faith could not achieve its goal, Paul means. In another example, in Romans eight twenty, Paul says that the creation was subject to futility. That is, that it was prevented from achieving its goal. So Paul here is describing people without purpose. Those who are unable to achieve the goal that God has designed them to achieve. You see, God created our minds for relationship with him. And here lies the problem. A person walking in futility is a person who, without God's help, is unable to perceive God's revelation for all that he is and for all that it is. They don't make moral decisions that would bring them a life of purpose. And so in futility, they are purposeless. But notice the progression that is here. Why do they walk in futility? In the next few verses, Paul gives the reasons why the world walks in futility. The first reason is because they are darkened in their understanding. And the second reason is because they are excluded from the life of God. This word to be darkened is always passive in the New Testament. It is something that is done to you. Uh, it is the opposite of being illuminated. And here it's in the perfect, perfect tense. Meaning that this darkness has not only happened, but it has continuing results. In other words, the world walks in a continuing state of darkness. It reminds me of John chapter 3 verse 19 where John says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. In addition, these people are excluded from the life of God. Remember Ephesians 2 verses 11 and 12 where Paul states that the Ephesian believers were formerly called uncircumcision. 
And they were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The idea of being excluded from the life of God here is all about existence. It's not about the daily process of living. But instead, it's all about eternal life. And these people have been excluded. But notice what Paul says in verse 18 as to why they are excluded. They're excluded because of the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance is a lack of perception. And it carries with it the idea of sin committed without full knowledge of its results. For example, in Acts 3.17, Peter says that the Jews acted in ignorance when they crucified Jesus. They did it, and they were morally responsible. But they didn't understand the full ramifications of their actions. The Gentiles here are ignorant to the revelation of God and His will. Peter describes this kind of ignorance again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, where he says about us, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But here we learn <clears throat> something more about this ignorance, and this is telling. We learn that ignorance is not equal to innocence. Paul says the world is ignorant because of the hardness of their heart. This ignorance that is in them is because they have hard hearts. They are ignorant because, not because of an external factor, but they're ignorant because of an internal factor. What causes their ignorance is something that arises out of the inner person called the heart. Romans chapter 1 parallels this idea, and it gives us an important understanding of how those who live according to the world think. We learn in Romans 1, 21 through 25, that people have made two critical exchanges. Uh, the first one is that they, professing to be wise, become fools. And they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. They exchange the incorruptible for the corruptible. And then secondly, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have believed that this world is all that there is, and they would rather believe a lie that makes them feel good than the truth. This exchange is the most dangerous of exchanges because it results in a callous hardening, Paul says, and a giving over to a lifestyle of sin. Several years ago, my son Andrew broke his leg in a soccer game. It was at night, and my veterinarian friends happened to be there, and so we took Andrew to the vet clinic. <laughs> there, we x-rayed his leg, and once we knew for sure it was broken, we took off and went to the ER. But on the way to the ER, after having put Andrew's leg in a splint, I remember saying to Richard, my friend, isn't it amazing that broken bones heal? Which caused Richard, the doctor, to explain to me exactly how it happens. He said that once the bone is set, the bone secretes this liquid. And this liquid then goes out to the outside of the bone over the break area. 
and it adheres to it. And then once the liquid is in place, it hardens over time like mortar and becomes hard like the bone. Even harder than the original, he said. Then the body naturally sands down any excess that the bone uh, that was broken had. And it is returned to its original size and shape. Aren't the intricacies of the healing process and God's design amazing? When Paul talks about being callous, he's talking about a hardening like that coming from a secretion that serves as mortar. Uh, This word is very rare. It's only used in the whole Bible one time. It is also a perfect participle, uh, which means that this condition has continuing effects. Uh, Paul is saying that these people over time have become so hard that they are no longer sensitive to God and his will. Therefore, they have given themselves over. They chose to do it. But what is it that they did? In verse 19, Paul uses a series of three words that paints the perfect picture of a person who lives in the world and for the world. The first word is alsogia, translated indecency, or in some translations, sensuality. It is used in scripture of sexual lust and drunkenness, but the idea behind the word is revealing. The idea is freedom with no boundaries. It is doing blatant acts openly and with no shame. It is fulfilling unrestrained desires. That's the first word. The second word is akatharsia, translated impurity. It is the foulness of a wound, not clean. The stench of an old, nasty infection. Thirdly is the word pleonexia, translated greedy. It comes from the word pleon and exo, which literally means I want more. When we put them all together, we find that Paul is describing the practice of a lifestyle with no boundaries, leading to unrestrained desire, moral impurity, and an insatiable desire for more regardless of need. This is the picture, this is the picture of a person living without God. But lastly, I want you to see the pattern here. I want you to see where it all starts. Because reversing the order, we see the worldly progression of a life without purpose. Sin leads to hardness. Hardness leads to ignorance. Ignorance leads to alienation. And alienation leads to a darkened mind. Darkened minds lead to a life of futility. And so we hear Christ... Excuse me, darkened minds lead to a life of futility. And so one question that comes to mind as we look at this passage, and maybe it's come to your mind as well, is can a Christian live like this? The short answer is yes. Because if it weren't possible for a Christian to get caught up in the world, Paul, Paul would not have told these believers, don't live like the Gentiles. James validates this in verse 4 where he says, Whoever, in James chapter 4, verses 4, where he says, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself 
an enemy of God. Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world. And so we are not talking about the creation itself here. But the world's system that is ruled by Satan that lures people into futility. A Christian can get caught up in the world's system. But I can hear Paul saying it now. I can just hear Paul saying, Listen, my friends. Listen. Don't live like the world because you did not learn Christ in that way. Notice the history of these believers. They once lived like the Gentiles, but they instead had learned Christ. And this is the turning point for every person for whom God breaks up their callous mortar and draws them to Jesus. They learned Christ. The Greek word mantheo means to learn, but its usage here is unique because Paul says that they learned a person. They didn't learn facts. They didn't learn about a person. Instead, they learned a person. And so now we're going to see what generation you represent. I want you to answer this question in your minds for just a moment. Where do you go when you want to learn something? Now, some of you thought books. Or maybe in my generation, you thought the encyclopedia. That's where we always went. But it's likely that many of you said the Internet. And so what can we learn via the Internet? What can we learn through books? Well, we can learn mathematics or about dogs or maybe cats. We can learn bicycles, houses, medicine, you name it. It's out there. We can learn examples. We can learn lessons or even wisdom. We can learn from all these things, all kinds of stuff. We can learn about a lot of things, and we can even learn about a lot of people. But Paul is not talking about just learning facts here. Paul is talking about learning Christ. Now, I know you understand what I mean, and I know you understand what he means. And so this, this weekend, I asked my wife, Melody, a series of a few questions to see if she had learned me. Before I asked, I thought to myself, warning, this might be dangerous. But I said to her anyway, which groups of words describe me? Less quality now, more quality later. She immediately said, more quality later. Coffee strong or weak? Strong. Blonde or black? Blonde. Sweet or unsweet? Sweet. Eccentric or ordinary? Eccentric. Relaxed or uptight? It depends. <clears throat> the fact is, she got every one of them correct, and she didn't even hesitate. Why? Because she's lived with me for 23 years. She knows me. She's experienced me. She has learned me. And so to learn Christ means to experience him, not just know the facts about him, but to know him personally, if indeed you've heard him and you've been taught in him. And Paul whispers, and I know you have. Notice the progression. Heard and taught. These people had heard the gospel. They had believed and were taught. This is why discipleship is so important in the life of a believer. 
This is why getting rooted in the Word is so important because this is how we learn Christ in a continuing process of daily growth. Notice the connection here between this passage and the previous one on grace gifts. Only part of the growth is personal. The other part of the growth is corporate. As believers in the body minister with and to each other through their giftedness. And so we hear Christ and are taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. And in so doing as we carry on this process of hearing and teaching. The spirit of God speaks to us and communes with us. So that we can say that we have learned Christ. And that we know him. Notice the word change here though. Uh, Paul moves from Christ to Jesus. And Paul makes a point to let us know that truth is in Jesus. In other words, Christ is truth embodied in the person of the historical Jesus. Christ and Jesus are one and the same. Jesus doesn't just have the truth. He is truth. And so what was it that these believers were taught? What is the content of what they were taught? Notice what it says in verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you have laid aside the old self, and you are to be renewed, having put on the new self. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment because this needs a little explanation, so hang in there with me. Here we have what's called indirect discourse, which means that Paul is not quoting exactly what these people were taught, but instead is summarizing what they were taught in kind. If my boys are all at the same friend's house, and I text one of them, and I say, come home, the one that received the message looks at his brothers and says, dad says, come home. That's indirect discourse. The one that received the direct command speaks to his brothers with indirect discourse. Now, sometimes in Scripture, indirect discourse reflects back to a command, as in my example that I just gave you. Other times, it reflects back to facts. For example, from this passage, we might say that we know from Ephesians that Jesus is truth. That's not a command. That's fact. Many translators have traditionally made the call here that this reflects back to a command. And so where we, we are commanded to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And while this may be a worthwhile exercise, I don't think it's likely what Paul is saying here. In Paul, the old self is what we were before conversion and is part of our identity before Christ. And to be consistent with other passages, when Paul talks about the old man and the new man. He talks about them from the perspective of facts that have happened to us at the moment of salvation. And it is because this conversion has happened that we are then to live accordingly. In other words, the acts of our faith are lived out because of the facts of our faith. Let's consider a few of these other examples where Paul looks at the old self and the new self. The first one is in Romans chapter 6, for he says this, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, surely we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was 
crucified with him, past tense. Secondly, in Colossians, Paul teaches this. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, past tense, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Colossians 3, 9 and 10, he says this. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed. Lastly, this concept is taught again in 2 Corinthians where Paul states, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. New things have, in fact, come if you trusted Christ. We've been taught here that the old is gone and that the new has come. It is finished. We have a new identity in Christ. The Wayside Chapel doctrinal statement talks about these concepts as well when it says that we believe in sanctification past, present, and future. We believe that we have passed from spiritual death to spiritual life, from the old creation to the new. It also says we believe in sanctification present, meaning that we have a progressive walk of growth and maturity in Christ in this life. Lastly, it says that we believe in sanctification future, meaning that we will be made complete fully and finally one day. Notice the characteristics, though, of this new identity in verse 24. First, God did it. This is a passive verb that tells us that this new creation is not our own. It originates from God. Secondly, it is characterized by righteousness and holiness, the exact opposite of a life lived in the world and a life lived in deceit. Lastly, notice that this new creation, this new life, this new self is of truth. That is, it originates from truth. And as Paul has already taught us in verse 21, truth is in Jesus. This new life is given to us by God, and it originates in the person of Jesus Christ. And so maybe right now, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, if the old self is gone and the new has come, then why do I still struggle with sin? I'm not caught up in the world's system. And I don't think my thinking is futile, but I struggle. This is an important question to ask, and it's an important question to answer because it hits right at the heart of our Christian identity and our Christian experience. Think of these two words, inauguration and consummation. As a believer, our salvation has been inaugurated. It's as good as done. But it's not fully been consummated. We live in the now and the not yet. We still live in a body that is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, as verse 22 states. And this body is the vehicle through which sin occurs. It's not a bad body in and of itself, but we can still act sinfully. As a matter of fact, John says in 1 John that we are lying if we claim to be sinless. That being said, we have the Holy Spirit 
and we're a new creation, but not in full. And so one day, God will give us a new body, and we will experience the fullness of our salvation. And so in the meantime, we can and should live in substantial victory over sin, but not in perfection from sin. Therefore, we struggle. And so why is all this important? So what? I mean, what's it matter? Well, right in between Paul's declaration of who we were, the old man, and who we are, the new man, we see these words in verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is our call, to be renewed. Before before Paul gives us the imperatives of daily living, which Roger is going to walk with us through next week, Paul is giving us the way to success. And what he's saying is, don't live like the world because you didn't learn Christ that way. Instead, live out of your new identity and be renewed in him. And so how are we renewed? We're renewed in the spirit of our minds, Paul says. It is the same as in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Christianity is about the heart and the mind. It is the mind that gets renewed, and the way we think leads to the way we act. It's present tense, repeated, and ongoing. It's passive, so that it's not something that we do to ourselves, but rather being renewed is something that is done to us. We are the recipients of the renewing, and Jesus is the renewer. But in order to be renewed, we have to be tied into the source, Jesus, the truth. In order to be renewed, we have to learn Christ. In 2017, learning Christ will not come automatically, but it will come intentionally. Here's some ways that you can do it. You can join a men's discipleship group. You can join a men or women's Bible study. You can join an ABF or a life group. Or you can start a new scripture reading yourselves. You can start a new prayer time and Bible study. You can meditate on God's word in silence and solitude. Remember those old clothes? They're gone. They're gone. You've got new ones now. Remember last year? It's gone. And it's not coming back. So here's your New Year's resolution. Just one. Spend time with Jesus. Learn Him. And in turn, you will be renewed. Let us pray. Lord God, I thank you for this great passage in Ephesians where Paul teaches us. He teaches us the distance from which we have come 
as unbelievers who are futile and purposeless in our minds. And Lord, that distance is great between what we were and what we are through grace and mercy that you have created us to be in Christ Jesus. And Lord, so we thank you. We thank you that we are new creatures in him. We thank you that you're doing the renewing day by day, moment by moment, as we spend time with him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.